Hi, welcome to the PAPSC podcast. I'm Becky Schultz and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Dave Measle. I'm the executive director of the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition and I use he, him pronouns. We're really excited to welcome you back to another episode of our podcast. We hope you've been enjoying the topics that we've been discussing in the past podcasts. And today we're going to kind of continue our conversation on the behavioral health managed care organizations. We've been speaking to representatives from the different BHMCOs across the state. And today we have representatives from Community Care Behavioral Health, also known as CCBH. And we're really excited to have them. They've both been very involved with the coalition in the past, and it's exciting to have them here to kind of talk about their organization and how they can support peer support uh, services. We have Kim McDonald-Wilson and Tracy Carney with us, and I'm going to hand it over to Kim first so that uh, she can introduce herself, and then Tracy can introduce herself, and then we'll start having a conversation with them. So, Kim, Great. go ahead. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kim McDonald Wilson. I'm the Senior Director for Recovery and Wellness Initiatives at Community Care, and I've been at Community Care for just 10 years, actually. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm on the Recovery and Wellness team. I lead that, and, and uh, Tracy is also one of the people that's on our Recovery and Wellness team. So, Tracy, I hand it over to you. Uh, thanks, Kim. And hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Tracy Carney. I work for Community Care. I've been there with them about six years now. And as Kim says, I, I am part of the recovery and wellness team, but the focus of my work is on peer support and member involvement and just really looking at recovery orientation in, in behavioral health care. Excellent. Thank you both for being here today. So just to start the conversation off, uh, maybe you can give a little bit of a background of, of what your MCO, what your insurance company kind of covers. I know you cover a lot of counties, so I'm not going to ask you to list all the counties that you right. cover, but you know, maybe how many counties in Pennsylvania does CCBH cover? Uh, right now, we have 42 of the 67 counties in the state where we manage the Medicaid behavioral health care services. As of July, we'll be 43 counties. We have a new county coming on. In, as of July 1st. Okay. And, and so what does an MCO do, I guess? Let's get the basics out of the way. Well, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> I think a, a, a really hard question to answer is what does managing behavioral health services mean? And uh, I think to us, it's really looking at the services that are available throughout the behavioral health system and making sure that people have access to good quality healthcare services when people have medical assistance as their health insurance coverage. So we kind of keep track of the, um, the money that's allotted to each county or contract that they then contract with us to keep an eye on those services and really make sure that people get access to the services that they need. I don't know, Tracy, is there anything else that you would want to add to that? 
No, I mean, it really is about helping people to find the supports that they need. And when I look at more as an individual or a person that's received services, you know, I know that I could go to my managed care organization. I know like at community care, we have a pretty incredible customer service that's there 24 seven, 365. And if you have a need, you call and they're going to help you to get connected to somebody that can provide a service for you in behavioral health or in substance use services. Well, really, they can help you with almost any service, to be honest with you. I I could even make that a little broader because if you had a need for food or, you know, things like that, you could also call the back of that car and somebody would get you connected with someone in your community that might be able to support or help you. Yeah, I I think that's a really important piece of the discussion and piece of the puzzle that people maybe sometimes forget about. Um, Certainly, (laughs) I I know insurance companies in general have a bad reputation. And a lot of people kind of view them as a necessary evil. But I think it's important to have this discussion and say, well, you know, what are the benefits and what can MCOs and and insurance companies do? You know, and and, uh, what you said, Tracy, you know, having that member service connection where people can call and get resources is really important. It seems like a good um, way to support individual recovery. Like if somebody needs individual support for their specific needs, member services is going to help them with that. Yeah, absolutely. Not only our, our member services, but also our care management team. So they're very connected with um, the provider, helping people identify what needs they have, the different types of services and providers that are available throughout the system that could really help them address the things that they're identifying as, as needed. And so the combination of the customer service and that personal outreach, I think, with care management for many people makes a difference. I know I like it when my insurance company calls me to ask me how things are going or offers to help me get access to what I need so that I'm not alone in kind of navigating a very complex healthcare system. And just, I guess, to add on to that a little bit, I think what I have really appreciated about working at community care is really the, just to be purposeful of listening to members to really capture their voice to say, you know, what's going well and what's not going well with your behavioral health services? Are there gaps in this? And um, I think we, we do a lot of work around Um, gathering member voice to say, you know, what do our members think? You know, how do our members feel the services are going or, and uh, we do that through, we have member, local member meetings. And then I facilitate a statewide advisory board where we have individuals in recovery, peer specialists, different people on that, that represent the counties and we come together. And we have this opportunity really to meet with the senior leaders at community care. And people can bring concerns, voice. If we're starting a new initiative at community care, they always take time to say, okay, well, what would our members think of this initiative or how let them give us input on how we should roll this out. So I think, you know, um, you know, as a big insurance company, I think they are really, really purposeful in getting member voice to say, you know, the people that are using our services are the ones that need to help us direct, you know, the direction. Yeah, so we we actually follow up on that. We actually make sure that we we express our values of you know making sure that members are actively involved throughout through some of the member meetings, but other ways that we 
really engage people in the operations of the organization and the behavioral health system that they have input on. And we highlight choice and self-determination and really focusing on the person first and not the diagnosis only or the medical issues, but really the person and what they're interested in doing, the direction they're interested in going and what actually can help people to, to get there. That to me seems like what we, there's a real priority on those things that really support recovery and wellness. And, and we try to develop that even further through getting more input on, are we doing this well? Are there things that you would suggest we do differently? And listen to that, make changes and let people know that we've heard them and we've done something about it. That's responsive to that, the, those perspectives. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, recovery-oriented kind of principles uh, put into practice at yes. CCBH, and that's encouraging to hear. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question for Tracy. I know, Tracy, you know, we've kind of discussed this in the past. Uh, you didn't mention this in your introduction, but uh, you are a certified peer specialist, um, you know, and, and you've talked about uh, when you started working at, at uh, the insurance company, um, you know, why would a certified peer specialist go work for an insurance company? Yeah. Uh, so I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that. Okay. And it really is. I know in the beginning, I always kind of saw, I don't mean this in a in derogatory way, but you kind of look at the business of mental health as being, you know, it's, you're trying to get a voice and you're trying to get somebody to listen. That's how I felt in the beginning in my recovery. And what I began to see is I had the opportunity to work with community care as a certified peer specialist on a project. Um, we piloted um, community care, piloted with the, the organization I was working with, um, CMSU, to start a behavioral health home, which is introducing physical health in a behavioral health setting. And I was asked to be part of that as that first initial pilot in the state. And I worked, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Peggy Swarbrick, and I don't know if you know Dr. Peggy Swarbrick, but again, just a real champion for peer support. And she had developed a wellness coaching model that the community, the leadership at Community Care decided this is going to be what we're going to use for our behavioral health home. We're going to use a wellness model created by Dr. Swarbrick. And so I, you know, trained under Dr. Swarbrick, I became a wellness coach, but my part and passion, I, I ran a, um, a recovery center and we had about 35 people every day that would come to the center. And over the course of two years, I lost nine members to, um, to things like heart disease, to um, complications from COPD, from diabetes. So while there were statistics out there that said individuals with mental health disorders die like 25 years sooner than the average population, I didn't see that as a statistic. I saw it as real people. And so I wanted to be part of a solution. And so when I found this model that I felt was recovery oriented and I started to work with community care, I met some of the most amazing people. And when I, when I met their leadership, they were people that believed in self-determination. They were people that were putting programs together that in my mind were recovery oriented. And I know that I could do things locally with people one-on-one, -on -one, which is still my heart. If anybody knows me, I would rather be out with people than just about anywhere. But um, 
I had the opportunity to say I could be part of something that's a little that's bigger. And I was asked to be part of a research team to come on board as what they we called it. They called it a patient, um, the patient at um, um, principal investigator. But I came on as a principal investigator with Dr. James Schuster. And um, and part of that research was we began to look at this model and we were able to expand what we were doing across the state. And it was just after that then that I was given the opportunity to go to work for community care. But I really felt like, and it's still today, this is 12 years later, my heart is still in this model of wellness coaching and using peer support and case managers as wellness coaches to help people address their physical health needs and their behavioral health needs, like that integrated type of model, really whole whole health is what I want to say. And so that was my real reason for coming on board at Community Care. But since I've, I've started here and I watch, you know, how much they listen and they don't just like get feedback from members, right? They don't just like gather feedback. They gather feedback and then they take what's being said and then they tell you what they're going to do with it. Like, it's not just a one-sided conversation. We're just going to gather feedback. No, we're going to gather your feedback. We're going to listen to what you have to say. And then we're going to share back with you what we've done with your information. So, so for me, it was really interacting with the people at Community Care that kind of said, I said, you know what, this is the work I want to be involved with. Yeah, and then so a follow-up question for Kim is, what has it meant to you having a certified peer specialist on staff? Uh, I, I think it's really made a big difference in and given our community care credibility that we have the voice of a peer specialist in the organization that promotes recovery and wellness, that lives it. <laughs> So that it really is an example for us of one of the ways that we try to do the right thing to really focus on individual recovery, uh, wellness, and anything that can really support people in that. And so, you know, uh, we rely on Tracy for a lot, not just training and reaching out to people in the community, to to peers participating in services, but also peer specialists and supervisors operating those services, but, you know, also communicating throughout community care um, so that they really understand the perspective of of people who are in services and in the recovery process. Um, So I I think it's actually given us a lot of credibility and made sure that we're developing programs and initiatives that are really targeted to making sure people have great quality services and that we're really all about promoting that recovery, health, and wellness. Yeah, and Dave, I would say too, I'm not the only peer specialist at Community Care too. There's right. there's others like on our team itself. You know, we have other peer specialists that work at Community Care. So, I think our, our recovery and wellness team itself has uh, five members, and three of them are certified peer specialists. Yeah, um, but also throughout Community Care, there are people in recovery, not only peer specialists hired. Um, and working at all different levels in the organization. You know, I'm one of those people with both personal and family lived experience in recovery. Um, But but there are also people in our community health workers, some of our care management and customer service staff, our training staff, you know, so there are a lot of people in and and people who may not have shared that they have uh, any personal experience. But it's, to me, kind of a very open place. It's okay to to share that and contribute that experience. It's really, it's really valued, I think, in the organization. 
something that I was always like a little bit jealous of with people who lived in CCBH counties was they had the decision support centers and the the other Pat Deegan things right. related the recovery library and all that. I I always wished I had access to that because that seems like a really useful like evidence-based tool for peer support and oh. introducing that into like a doctor's office. Exactly. Yeah, we had, I had the opportunity to, when I worked at CMSU, we opened a decision support center. Again, community care was our, our managed care organization. And I was one of the first peers to work in a, a decision support center. And, you know, we never had peers working with doctors before. It was kind of almost like a taboo. And I'll be honest, it was a little, it was a struggle at first to kind of find your way, find your role to help other people understand what you were doing. But Pat Vegan's model it, it just, it's all about, you know, that person walking in the door that they, when they go into that appointment, which we know doctor's appointments are, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, if you're lucky, you know, and there's a lot you want to cover. And so being able to meet a peer specialist, when you walk in, you do a health report, which is, you know, designed for the person to say between now and my last appointment, here's how I've been doing. And then really focusing on in on what's the person's goal for that appointment today? What do they want to make sure that's being covered? And then the peer specialist in that office is there to support with all kinds of resources, like you said, Becky, from the recovery library, from Pat Vegan's recovery library. And, you know, they do a health report and then that health report goes into the doctor before they even get there. And the doctor can look it over and say, oh, here's things that I need to cover with this person when they come in. And then, you know, the goal is that the doctor and the person then come with a shared decision when they leave of here's what the person's going to do and here's what the doctor's going to do and what type of materials might this person need to support them in it. And that's what the peer specialist can do. So it's just such a nice way to really, you know, capture that shared decision making and really focus on, you know, not just what's important to either the doctor or the person, but how do we bring them together so that people are really moving forward in their recovery. And I've been just, you know, again, that was one of the other projects. Wellness coaching was one, but certainly I'm, a, you know, working as in the DSCs as a, I oversee one of the decision support centers. I, you know, it's just been a real bless for me, a real blessing. Now, Tracy was one of the people we wanted to make sure got uh, on the certified uh, common ground specialist training so that she could actually work directly with those decision support centers on, you know, how to implement this whole approach well in their, their clinic. Yeah. And thank you for explaining uh, for people who didn't know what that was, um, what those things are, because I think that's really helpful for people uh, to understand and maybe take advantage of if they're not aware that it's in their county. Do you know what, um, your MCO, what CCBH looks for in peer support audits, like what kind of things they find need improvement? Uh, well, we, we actually look at that, what you're calling audit process, really as a quality review. So we're really trying to focus on partnering with, collaborating with the providers to figure out the best ways to offer high quality services to members. And so that happens in peer support, as well as all our all the other different services that are available throughout the system. Um, we actually got involved in developing um, performance standards for peer support services. So we all had input into what our quality team um, is looking for and consulting with those providers uh, about uh, focusing on, on doing what they're already doing well 
and what are the other areas that might be helpful to develop. And so it's very individualized kind of process, but based on the standards where we had an opportunity to say, you know, peer support programs are all about offering that choice, engaging people in care, having a voice, um, and being able to develop the things that help them in their recovery and wellness that they themselves can do. And, you know, especially when they have a role model of someone who's gone through that very process themselves and able to share their experience. And those are the things, hopefully, that they're looking for in those quality reviews and trying to really enhance or uh, that we would suggest that they enhance in those services. Really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. What, what ways do you think that it comes the other way around? Like, in what ways do peer services benefit your MCO, like from the outside? And I think there's a lot of ways that we could say that peers help. You know, again, what peers do is they support our members. And, you know, um, you know, a member that's, you know, being supported by a peer is, you know, realizing their hopes and dreams. They're beginning to, you know, work on themselves. And the whole idea of recovery is that, you know, you're helping someone to get well. And I see peers as being an integral part of that, you know, um, that when you when a person is it's we have data that shows when a person's in peer services, they're not using crisis. They're not using higher levels of care because they're doing well. And so the work of the peer specialists and, and, and certainly in my mind only supports that we do in helping our members to stay and get well. So again, the goal is the same. Um, we want people to do well and we see peer support as being one of those services that really helps people. And, and really help people to advocate for the things that they're interested in and that they need for their recovery um, and get access to other services and resources in the community, like someone who's already been through that process and knows, you know, how to get around, how to navigate <laughs> that system um, that, frankly, some of our professionals, uh, you know, may not be as aware of. And so, you know, hearing that from somebody who can actually help you with that is, I think, really valued. And it helps us because people are getting then what they need. Yeah, and I'm sure that Not people being told who... by someone what they should need. <laughs> yes, right. yes. And I'm sure that someone who um, comes through the system and has some success with utilizing your services and the way that things operate in those counties um, may eventually want to be a peer specialist. So that's the yeah. way the loop kind of closes on itself. Um, so I think that's interesting and helpful to the system. And individuals within that system. Right, exactly. I think the other thing, too, that, you know, I've had the privilege of working on, um, you know, as part of my role at Community Care is we have a peer support strategic plan. And, you know, really the goal is to um, support, support our peer providers um, so that they really have high quality services for our members. So our members can come and they can get really good peer support. So how do we do that? Like that's kind of been, so, you know, kind of part of my work is how do we support peer providers? Um, and so we have, we, you know, we've had our peer providers tell us we want outcomes. We want to see, show us, you know, show us with your data that 
peer support works. And, you know, we have data around that. We've, you know, done that work to say, we are really going to look at, you know, some of the data around peer support, because again, we want to raise awareness. We want people to know about peer support. We want our members to utilize peer support. Um, We have worked in our strategic plan on competencies, just really what do our peer workers need? What do supervisors need? Um, last year, we did, a, we did a whole supervisor training. We had Dr. Peggy Swarbrick again come in and we hosted a, a well-attended, I think we had over 60 people, over that 60, had, yeah, 60 yeah. peer providers that attended her training on, you know, how do I best supervise my staff, you know? And so really creating these competencies. And like, I really try to reach out and talk to all our supervisors across our counties to say, what's happening? How are things going? Certainly the pandemic has been thrown, you know, a monkey wrench into a lot of things. And, you know, how are your, how's your staff doing? Are you having trouble with retention? What's the workforce? So for me, just to know who the different peer supervisors are that are actually doing the work has given me, you know, a lot of insight and their insight really, you know, helps us then to develop a plan to move forward to best, you know, um, support, you know, support the peer providers. So our members have access to good services. So it's really, I really feel like it's this continual loop of understanding what's the needs out there. And then how do we as community care try to meet those needs? And then how do we feed that back, whether it be to our members or to your peer providers? Yeah, not to go too far back, but earlier in what you were saying, you were talking about outcomes. And I've been in that position where I've asked for outcomes from an MCO. So I'm just wondering, uh, just to highlight our successes a little bit, what are some of the outcomes you've found for peer support? Well, that's another great question. Um, One of the things we know that is, and, and we have a limited source of data. You know, we, we use claims data primarily. That's what we have access to. We don't necessarily have access to what people, the records that of people in those programs or services. So when people are involved in peer support, as Tracy said earlier, we find that they are using less, um, going into the hospital less often, using less crisis services, um, and connecting with some of the other services kind of on an outpatient or, you know, what's called ambulatory care basis um, that really helps them meet their needs and, and stay in the community and not be in an, as restrictive kind of settings. And so that, that's we can look at that from from claims. Um, we've been trying to get at other things like, you know, do we see changes in hopefulness, for example? Um, hope for recovery uh, and a different life. And in general, when people are connected with peer support services, they're much more hopeful about things working out well for them in the future. Um, That includes maybe no longer being involved in the behavioral health system because, you know, they're able to kind of manage things um, on their own or with, you know, support in the community and not necessarily only from professionals. Um, And so those are the things that we think are really important aspects, not so much a decrease in cost in services, but that people are realizing their hopes and dreams out in the community, you know, being able to work, have their own place to live, go to school, you know, the things that that most of us want. Um, We don't easily have access to that information, but we're trying to figure out ways to get more of that so that we can really supplement what we find from our claims data. 
Yeah. And I can say, um, I know that everybody's heard that we decrease hospitalizations like as a service, but I think that hits harder for some peer specialists. Like I'm not saying all peer specialists have been hospitalized, but if you have, you know what that restriction actually feels like. And it's, it's so much like there's so much stuff taken away from you when you're inpatient, as far as your rights and abilities to do things. So I think that's the number one thing to highlight all the time, not just because it saves us the most money, but because it saves people the most trauma. It also means that people are not only that they're not in the hospital, but they're, they're out in the community. Right. You know, and, and that's, that, that's the positive side of it that we like to look at is that, you know, people are able to stay in their homes or the apartment where they're living. They're able to go back to, you know, those roles that they've chosen that are very important to them. Um, so, you know, that to me, up me is actually, I kind of look like to look at that positive side and not just what we decrease the amount of hospitalization. Yes, you know, it can be very traumatic anytime anyone is in the hospital. And we definitely don't want to expose people to more of that. But what, what really do people gain from being able to live in the community longer? Yeah. And some people I also don't... see the other thing that, you know, we can see in looking at some of our CRS services, too, with individuals with substance use challenges, is that there's they do engage in, you know, um, you know, substance use services, you know, so again, if somebody is part of a warm handoff program and that, you know, an intervention comes in, somebody comes in, that's a CRS, you know, and meets that person, well, that person's more likely to engage in services that will aid their recovery. So again, just, just really nice pictures of ways that peers support people to get well. Get well and stay well. Yes. So as I was listening to you talk, I, I kind of have a couple of uh, uh, thoughts and, and maybe some questions, uh, and maybe we can have a little discussion about this. First, one of the things I was thinking about um, is that uh, there's been a couple of areas that uh, the coalition has been looking into in terms of uh, advocating for some changes within uh, peer support. We did a survey and, and uh, gathered some feedback from uh, peer professionals across the state and uh, I'm sure it'll be no surprise to you, <laughs> to either you, Tracy or Kim, uh, some of the outcomes. But, uh, you know, certainly higher pay was uh, one of the outcomes um, that uh, peer supports uh, feel they need higher pay, which I agree with. Um, yes. And uh, also one of the pieces from that survey was that peers want more advancement opportunities or, or more opportunities they can use their, their credential for. And one of the things that I was thinking about, Tracy, is, you know, that there are limited opportunities for uh, peer professionals um, kind of beyond being a direct service peer. Uh, But your example shows that there are some opportunities. And and I do applaud CCBH for employing CPSs and and, and peer professionals. Um, I don't think all of the MCOs do that. Uh, So it's... It's nice that CCBH does that. So I don't know if you want to talk about either one of those uh, those topics or those areas. I mean, I can just speak to it in the sense of 100% agree, you know, with what you're saying, like uh, wages and advancement opportunities. They, It seems like the way we have peers set up now, it's really kind of an entry-level position. 
And then, you know, the opportunities to really advance would be if you, you know, can go become a peer supervisor, if you can kind of, you know, work your way up, if there is a career ladder within your agency. And I think it's one of the reasons we do see peers maybe staying in. I think the when we looked over some of our data, it was like peers stay in the role for about three to four years. And then there's tends to be a movement, whether that be that they find a better paying job, but if they've you know, it's just not a job that's paying super well. And yes, we need, and that's true of all healthcare. I mean, human service workers, be it, you know, anybody that's caring for people, we're paying them a whole lot less, which to me is something that's got to really, we have to advocate for change on, not just, you know, not just within community care, but at the statewide level as well. You know, we've really got to put higher value on people that care for people. Um, so I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. I think one of the things that we want to look to do to address those very issues of levels of pay and you know, more advancement opportunities is really look at integrating peer support throughout all levels of care in the system, not just talking about separate and distinct peer support programs, right? Um, that's that's one area. And as Tracy said, we kind of pay people as if they're entry level, but peer specialists that are working in these in independent peer support programs actually have to be quite skilled <laughs> to do peer support well. Um, there are a lot of things around kind of time management and there's travel involved and you're really helping people to figure out what's going to make the difference in their own in their recovery. Um, and that's not something that an untrained person can necessarily do well in how to use your experience to support people in moving forward. Um, so if we develop more opportunities throughout the system for peers to be involved in like crisis centers and hospitals and outpatient clinics and other psych, psych rehab programs, that's my background is in psychiatric rehabilitation. And I think we were actually probably psych rehab programs were one of the first people that recognized the value of people in recovery, actually supporting people and providing support in a program. So, so I think we need to do much more of also promoting that as well as this awareness of peer support as a, a separate and distinct service can really offer uh, both to the people and to the systems, behavioral system. Yeah, and then that um, might create some of those levels of, you know, career advancement uh, because people will have options and there'll be competition for good uh, ear specialists. Yeah, and then I was just going to add, um, I think the third part of the survey is education for the broader community was a priority um, and education within um, the field. So keeping peer specialists and recovery specialists and other peer professionals educated, and then also educating stakeholders and providers and things like that. Does community care kind of contribute to that as well? Well, definitely we do. I mean, so I, I think we have to not only focus on training the peer professionals, we need to actually do a lot of work also in training other 
professionals, other providers in the behavioral health system about the value of peer support and what people can, how people can benefit from it and what kind of impact that participating in peer support does. And the more that we do that, the more that peer support will, will kind of grow, I think, in its value to the entire system. And if we don't do that, we're going to have, you know, peer support kind of siloed. You know, there'll be, oh, that's a pro, little program over there. You know, there are so many people that really could benefit from peer support that right now are not involved in it. And I'd rather see much more of our effort go into that to maybe expand, you know, more people having access to and using peer support services. Um, so we need to think, I think, a little bit outside the box. It's not the issue of only focus on the training of the peer specialists. We need to really look at the whole system. And it is part of our strategic plan around peer support is this not a raising awareness of peer support, but not just to, you know, members in our community, but also to other behavioral health providers, you know, helping them to understand the role. And, you know, and I feel like I've been around a long time, Dave. So, you know, like I started out, I was like back in 2006, one of the first peer. And it's, you know, I have to remind us that this we're still kind of in infancy with our profession. It's it's evolving and we've come a long way, you know, uh, in the last, you know, what, 13 years, 12, 13 years. But we, you know, we're still a, a fairly young profession and we just got to keep, you know, working at it, advocating, you know, some of the decisions we made when we started before we were even Medicaid billable, a lot of our things in our system were set in place. And now we have to kind of continue to advocate. And, you know, as the role develops and change, I hope we can continue to um, develop as a profession. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point, Tracy. And thank you for, for bringing that up. And I, and I do try to remind people and myself because I, I get anxious and and frustrated and thinking, oh, we, we should be farther along. But uh, uh, it's a good point to recognize that uh, we are still, in the grand scheme of things, a very new service yeah. um, and that there's always going to be growing pains and, uh, you know, and challenges that we need to overcome as a new service. Um, so we need to be patient. Uh, it doesn't mean we should be quiet yeah. <laughs> and just be like, okay, it is what it is. You know, we should be advocating, but we also need to be patient and recognize that uh, that this is just part of the process of building a new service. Right. I do have another question. And, and uh, what do you guys think or, you know, what are your feelings on private insurance covering peer support? Uh, currently, peer support is only available, at least in Pennsylvania, to uh, people who are on medical assistance. How important do you think it is for uh, private insurances to cover as well and in, in the importance of that and the expansion of peer support? Well, I think I actually think it's very important. I know that UPMC is looking at expanding peer support throughout all of their different types of insurance and not just in uh, medical assistance oriented kind of programs, public, publicly funded uh, insurance. So um, the more that we can demonstrate the, the positive effect or impact of peer support services, the more likely that those commercial insurance programs and private insurance programs will start to look at the, va the value that peer support can bring uh, to their members and to their organization and to their bottom line, frankly. Um, so which, 
you know, for some companies also is that that's their primary, <laughs> their primary motive. But we need we need to actually do more in terms of really sharing what those positive outcomes of peer support are so that it makes sense to other organizations to start to to incorporate it into their array of services. Yeah, I think, so I think we're moving in that direction. It's still slow, <laughs> I think, but I think we're moving in that direction. I think something we haven't mentioned that we probably are um, expected to at this point is that, you know, peer support has a bit more of a hurdle to jump over because of stigma, makes it harder for that career to kind of get off the ground. Um, for people who believe that it's just like patients running the show and like things are not um, kosher with that and that's not safe. And I see it in therapy groups all the time. Sometimes on the internet, you find things. Um, but I just, I think that it's really important that we make it clear that the whole reason that we exist is because recovery is probable and that we work with our supports to get there. And that deserves some credit and some respect from the people who provide that support as well, um, that we are able to progress in our recovery. So I think um, that's just important to like point out at this point when we're talking about this. Oh, definitely. It is, yeah, I, I was just gonna say though, you know, again, I've, I've been around a long time and, you know, as being one of the first peers to be hired by an agency, you know, Becky, I can, you know, so relate to the stigma that was part of that in the beginning. And I heard all the things, I mean, you just can't even believe what some people would say, oh no, we're giving the keys to the asylum, you know, to the, to the patients. Or I had somebody asked if I was going to use the staff bathroom or, you know, the, the client bathroom, you know, and, you know, just like things that today, you know, I look back on and I'm like, yeah, that was tough. And I think, you know, in the beginning when you were like kind of before the role was, I feel like the role has been a little, you know, it's a little clearer today what peers do. We've kind of really gotten to that point. But in the beginning, it was really tough. And there's a lot of people that still think like that. And, but I think what what we need to focus on is, is the peers themselves, like the people doing this work. We are the evidence and we have to continually bring that awareness up. You know, I've been in this field for 12, not 12 years now. I'm not going anywhere. You know, I, you know, I'm a peer specialist at heart. That's what I'll always be. You know, you, Becky, you, Dave, like we are the peer specialists. We are the evidence that not only do people recover and get well, but we go on to work and we do some pretty phenomenal work and people need to know that. So for me, we are only going to bust stigma by being that evidence and standing up and speaking about it. But I do out. think that, you know, when they start yeah. seeing outcomes that say, wow, when somebody's enrolled in peer services, they aren't going to the hospital. They aren't involved in crisis. Their lives are starting to work. That's our evidence. And we got to say, you know, our work is doing that. You know, our work with an individual, our work of support is helping that individual in their lives. And I think the more that message gets communicated, you know, they can argue a lot of things, but they can't argue the results. And so I think we just keep being, right. just keep, you know, staying strong, true to what we know and, you know, having those results and helping people because recovery is real. <laughs> right. Beautifully said. Thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate that you took the time to actually invite us to do this, this podcast. So, you know, it, it was really, I, I was a little nervous about it. Trace and I were talking about that because it's something we haven't done before, but I think this is one of the ways that we kind of get a, a, the message out about 
how peer support works and, you know, what the value of it is in our system. We ought to be focusing on promoting it. And the more that people hear from people in recovery about how peer support works, um, the less stigma that will be, there will be about, you know, sharing an experience about, uh, you know, in, in the mental health system. Um, and that would be, I, I mean, I see that changing slightly since the pandemic, you know, more people acknowledging that, you know, we've, it's been, it's been hard on us and, you know, reaching out for support is a great thing to do and reaching out to a peer specialist, someone who's been through it is to me, probably even better to do. I was going to say though, I, and just kind of piggybacking on what Kim said, you know, the reason I believe in peer support is because it saved my life. Like I can, and I don't say that just, you know, flippant or anything, but you know, when I met other people in recovery, and this was way back before it was peer support was, you know, officially peer support. But when I met other people in recovery and they offered me the hope that my life could move beyond the walls of a state hospital and I could move in the community and not only just move, but get well and stay well. Like to me, that was like, I, it was the hope. And you, if you don't have hope, you can't move forward. And so for me, when I met, and this would be a married cohort and a bunch of people from PMHCA, Shelly Bishop back in the day, you know, that group of people, if I hadn't met them, I don't know where I'd be today because nowhere in all of my hospital stays did anybody say the word recovery. They said maintenance, they said stabilization, they said things like that, but nobody ever said you could recover. And when I heard people get up and share their story and say they recovered, I was like, oh my word, it's possible. Like I didn't, wasn't even sure what to do, but at least I knew there was like this hope or this spark. And I think that's what peers do. And, you know, I just want us to keep being that hope in a world that oftentimes gives us a lot of negative messages. But yeah, yeah I, I, I kind of wish think... that this was something that was available. I mean, my grandmother was involved in the state hospital system for many years in the 50s and 60s um, and even into the 70s in and out. and recovery wasn't even a concept at that point in time, you know, take your meds, live at home, do nothing, stay safe, you know, don't stress yourself out. And that's it. That's was like, all. and she was a fighter and would not listen to everybody and do like go to work or, you know, move into her own apartment, those kinds of things. Um, but with little support from the system to do that. And I'm so glad that that's changing now. And, it, and it's changing in part because peer support's now available to people. Absolutely. So it is, a, it is about time to wrap up our podcast. And I want to thank both of you for, for being here. I think this was a really important discussion. Um, one, I, both of you are just, you know, you're so uh, passionate about uh, recovery and uh and uh, peer professional services um and that passion comes through uh tracy you know you're one of the pioneers here in pennsylvania so having you on is uh is truly an honor um and hearing some of your experiences but beyond that having this perspective from an insurance company uh, is really important as well, because I think we do need to build some bridges between uh, the insurance companies and the provider agencies and the staff who are out there on the front lines. 
And uh, that was one of the reasons that we decided to do this series of uh, podcasts with uh, representatives from the different uh, behavioral health managed care organizations. Um, and at least from the Pennsylvania Peer Support Coalition perspective, CCBH has always been very supportive of our organization. Um, and so having you guys here to have this discussion has been really important uh, for us and, and for me. Becky, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? I just think um, this was a really rich discussion. It wasn't just like, you know, here's our questions. Look at your answers. It was very like helpful to me in kind of putting it all together. So I want to say I appreciate that. Um, getting all of this all in one spot in my head kind of makes more sense now. Um, so I think it'll do that for some of the listeners as well. So I appreciate your time and um, really appreciate the discussion today. Well, thanks, That's David. Great. Thanks for, for the us. opportunity. Yeah. Kim and Tracy, you kind of gave some final thoughts already, but I just want to give you uh, an opportunity here to share anything else that you want to share before we wrap up. I just want to say thanks again for having us and and really to the listeners that are peer specialists, you know, I believe in the work you do keep doing it. You know, I just want to be I want to be the number one cheerleader for peer support in Pennsylvania. I it's my heart. It was my roots. And I definitely want to see it grow beyond me, <laughs> beyond my lifetime. To our listeners, I just want to you know say thank you for joining us for another episode of our podcast. Uh, we will be having additional podcasts uh, once a month. We're releasing them. We will be talking to representatives from some other managed care organizations as well that, that operate within Pennsylvania, as well as other peer leaders. Uh, so we hope that you continue to enjoy our podcasts and continue to tune in. Uh, until next time, have a, have a great time, everyone. Take care of yourselves.